Hey there, I'm Vicki Howell, and this is Craftish, episode number 16. We actually didn't think we were going to be able to make this episode happen for today. Uh, we had a like random breaker go out, and we're without power at our home where we produce this show from for like 14 hours, which, you know, it's kind of a big deal in our in this day and age. I mean, you know, first word world problems and all of that but when you produce everything out of your house like other than like not being able to binge watch Netflix and make coffee and stuff we you know we can't record we can't edit and all of that and I don't know if you've ever seen that commercial where the family loses Wi-Fi and they're just kind of wandering around aimlessly like they've lost something and they're not really sure what like is it their keys no like are all children in place yes and then there's a little girl rocking back and forth you know with her iPad held high just chanting please come back please I love you I miss you so much that was basically our household last night with various techie devices, um, but also just in the general direction of the air conditioning because it's like 100 degrees here. So needless to say, it was a rough night-ish, but um, we're back, we have power, and uh, we have a show for you today. So this episode is sponsored by Makers Mercantile. Makers Mercantile is a space for fueling your creativity and inspiring you to make with any medium you feel passionate about. Their online shop carries supplies for sewing, weaving, knitting, crochet, and dyeing, plus curated gifts, books, craft storage, apparel, and more. You can check them out at makersmercantile.com for more info, and then stay tuned for the end of this show for a special deal from them for you crafters out there. This week, I sat down with my longtime friend and craft industry colleague, Kathy Fillion. You may know her from her stint as the co-host and co-producer of DIY Network's Creative Juice, along with her co-host and partner in crime, Steve Piacenza, or from their signature YouTube video series, or as half of the spokesperson duo for Mod Podge. During our conversation, we delve into her journey from film wardrobe stylist, to shop owner, to Emmy-nominated TV host, to being a face of the number one craft product in its category. She also generously shares a bit of her experience about becoming a mother to two gorgeous little girls through the FOST Adopt program. So let's meet her now. Kathy Fillion, thank you so much for coming on to Craftish. Thank you so much for having me. I have been really excited to talk to you again because I feel like every time we actually see each other, it's out on a convention floor or someplace where we're running back and forth and we kind of like high five each other, like (laughs) maybe pass off some craft supplies, but we don't really get to sit down um, and talk. And, you know, you and I sort of started in television, well, in front of the camera around the same time, or at least craft television. Um, you know, probably about 12, 14 years ago. And and we've been through this evolution of what is now, you know, everybody on camera at all times. And I want to dive into that. But before we get started, I would love if you would share sort of the impetus of your creative career, maybe starting with your work with Betsy Johnson, and then moving on. Sure, sure. Um, Yeah, it's funny, because people will say all the time, like, they they think like I guess going back to the television set they assume that you must be an actress or something and which I've always joked that I'm not an actor I was a crafter and I have been my whole life and my whole career has always um, had some sort of a creative angle on it and starting with Betsy Johnson which it was 
very lucky that I got that. But at the same time, I really stuck my neck out. They didn't have an internship program. And um, I was at Ohio State. This is before the internet. <laughs> this is before um, any kind of, you know, literally I had to use a stamp and an envelope to contact. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> so... Uh, what happened was I called um, their offices in New York City and um, I asked if they had an internship program and they said, no, they didn't. And I said, well, why not? And they thought about it and thought, well, I don't know why, don't, why we don't. So uh, they said, send us your information. So I put together a little packet of drawings that I had done and just sort of history of my sewing experience and things like that. So you and went into school for textile design. That was where your passion was at the time. Yeah. So um, technically my degree is in textile science. So I was not so much the drawer of the fabric, but more the um, chemical engineering behind it. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is like a total nerd bill. <laughs> but um, I loved it. Um, I had worked at Joanne Fabrics for years all through high school and college. And I was just a fabric junkie. And so um, it made sense for me. And, you know, as my career progressed, I have always uh, gone back to those beginning roots of my education. So, How did you even know that was a thing? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I've talked to so many people about how, you know, when we were growing up at the, you know, local job fair, the local like college fairs, you weren't getting, you know, yarn companies and fabric companies weren't coming to recruit. Right. <laughs> so how do, how do you find how do you find out that there's that there's a degree in, you know, textile science? Well, you know, I I don't know. I don't really remember exactly how it all came about. Um, I was interested in the fashion industry, and I had been sewing since I was eight, and I had been sewing my own clothes for years. I One of the school dances, I made my dress plus all my friends' dresses. I was already making wedding gowns when I was in high school. So, I mean, really, this is, yeah, this is just what I did. Where did that clientele come from? My friends at school. <laughs> It was just, you Your know, high school this, friends were getting married? Yeah, one of them right out of high school got oh. married. She's still married, has a flock of children. Huh. <laughs> yeah. So um, it just kind of, and I worked at Joanne. So people would come in and they would, you know, be buying patterns and they didn't know how to read patterns. So many times it, I, that would turn into jobs outside of my work where they would say, oh, well, I don't really want to make the Halloween costume. Can you make it? And I would say, sure, I'll make it for you. And then, you know, so yeah, it was, I was making money. <laughs> but at that point, I mean, I, I, it's still a very common dile a dilemma today on what to charge people for, uh, well, yeah. for crafts. I mean, and that's, that could be a whole other conversation about, you know, how artisans price things for Etsy and the sort of disservice we do to each other and that kind of thing. But at least you can Google this kind of stuff. You can you can pull up boards where people discuss, you can make an informed decision. But how is a teenager pre-internet days figure out like what a workable wage is for the amount of time that goes into a handmade costume? That and also just like I think in a lot of professions, you're also paying for the person's experience and the expertise. And um, at the time, I didn't have an actual degree in it. But, you know, so you have to factor in that aspect, too. Like your knowledge, you have to be uh, compensated for that as well. Mm -hmm. So um, back in the day, I think it was just a combination of how many hours it would take to do something times whatever was the 
money, you know, the sort of minimum wage, I guess, at the time. And then I would tack on um, some sort of a fee, which I considered was, you know, my talent fee, I guess, my my fee for knowing how to actually do it. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, you think that's important. I think that's important for all of us that are artisans, um, no matter what our medium is, is. I love that you had the wherewithal as a teenager to know that you had value there. Did that come from, where did that come from? Did that come from your parents? From, did you have mentors? Probably my parents is what I'm guessing. Uh, my mom is, um, I don't know if you know this, but so I grew up split between Oklahoma and Des Moines, Iowa, and my mom was the public relations manager for Better Homes and Gardens. I didn't um, know that. Yeah. <laughs> so I grew up running around the halls of Better Homes and Gardens. So <laughs> much makes sense now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Um, so I think just being around and being around the prop rooms there and, and just always being around people who were making things and... Um, that sort of helped that. So I think it was probably my mom who helped me with some of those types of, you know, how to charge and stuff like that. Okay, so you decided that there would be a talent fee. You added that on. What what does that look like? Is that like another ten bucks or another? I, I, try, I mean, that was so long ago. <laughs> um, but yeah. you're not you're not doubling it for your talent. You're just tacking on like. Yeah, whatever. I think at the time it was probably about twenty or twenty five sure. bucks. Sure. Something like that. Um, you know, it, but it was, it, people paid. They were so happy. I mean, they were just so happy to have whatever thing they needed. Um, another thing I did just at Joanne's was I implemented the first classes there, which probably won't surprise you because, you know, I like to teach. Yeah. But um, so I would do a class and uh, Joanne's got the money for it. It was before they had all, you know, this is so long ago. It's not like the classes that they have now. And, um, they would, the I don't know how they, it was maybe a $5 fee to come and take it or something. And they would bring in a sweatsuit and then I would show them with felt and glue how they could turn it into any kind of an animal for Halloween. And I think the costumes have gotten a lot more sophisticated yeah. now. <laughs> they're pretty over the top now. Well, there are a lot more sexy costumes than when we were kids. Oh, my gosh. You have like, girls, you've noticed that everything for girls, like... I'm like sexy talkers. red white and hood. What? <laughs> like sexy robot? What? What? Yeah. what? <laughs> Everything. The Party City catalog is just like, oh, divert eyes. There should be like a censorship thing over it. <laughs> Tipper Gore should get on that. <laughs> Everything is. It's so true. <laughs> so you, so you get this internship, and ultimately you decide that the fashion industry itself is not for you. What yeah, happens then? Uh, well, so yeah, I was, I, I joke that like when I saw the devil wears Prada, I was like, that's it. Were you, now, is that, was the timeline the same? Were you still working in the fashion industry at that point? No, no, not, okay. when, not when that movie came out. But when I, when the movie came out, I thought, oh, I just, I could feel all those feelings. But, uh, at Betsy, it was amazing. Like there was none of that issue existed there. It was all, um, it was just a great, great environment, and everybody was very welcoming and creative and awesome. And she's it very was, much about female empowerment as well, right? Absolutely, she's always talking yeah. about Betsy's girls and that kind yeah. of thing. And it was just fun because she made her own fabrics, so um, that was really good for me. Like, I was getting – it was what I had actually studied to do, and it ended up turning into a job. So, um, But everyone else that we had to work with – editorial wise and this and this and this it was it was so insanely cutthroat I was in New York City and I just thought oh my gosh you know I'm so Midwest and 
it was really hardcore for me. <laughs> so yeah, thought I've got I got to make a change. And so very similar to um, what I did when I got my first job, which was with Betsy just sending the letter. I thought, well, why can't I do costumes for movies? And so I sent out. Um, like 250 resumes. I contacted the costume guild and I got the list of all the head people and I sent out um, resumes and I got my first film job within two weeks. And you got a job from like a cold call. Yeah. I mean, just from, cold submission. Yeah. That's both. amazing. So I got my Betsy Johnson job that way. And I yeah. got my 10 year career in film started with literally a, do you remember mail merge? I don't even know if Max yeah. has it. Yeah, it was a mail merge. I yeah. did. It. I inputted everybody's names and then I merged it all together, and so the like printed them out and it was literally you know stamped envelopes mailing. Props to you because I d- I did the same thing only in television. Um, I did some faxing. Sometimes I got crazy oh, and went sure. over to the Kinkos, um, <laughs> but I remember you know sending sending resumes to, you know, Jodie Foster's company. And I'm trying to think of all the women that I really admired at that time. And I I got nary the call. So props to you. (laughs) I also did not have was not coming off a great internship like that. But I love that. I love that you did that. And that it panned out for you. Well, I think too, it was like, I could sew. And so I was really bringing something to the table that was different oddly most people think costume designers can sew and most of them don't really is it because there's more styling involved or Mm -hmm. it's shopping we shop a lot and then there's builds so there's a lot of big builds but the person who's doing the big build is you know a a master seamster or seamstress you know that's build meaning whatever the main like the dress in cinderella or exactly okay Like, you can't buy any of that stuff off the rack. So, um, like, a good example, I did a movie um, years ago, and uh, it was called The Postman. And that movie had, gosh, I don't even know. We probably had 50 or 60 people in the costume department. And I would say 25 of those people were just sewing all day. They, They were just sewing costumes all day. Like, nothing was off the rack there. Everything was built. So the postman with um, Kevin Costner. Uh huh. Yeah. Why? Why was nothing off the rack? Because that, it was sort of a like a deserty period piece, right? Yeah. Well, it was post-apocalyptic, so um, it, like the world had. It's kind of a weird movie, <laughs> but from a costume standpoint, it was one of my favorites to work on. Um, so, like, some of the outfits were actually um, made out of real. Uh, fish like skin um so everything you can't tell it doesn't read in the movie but everything is like some of the girls outfits are actually made out of uh antique quilts that we cut up so it's basically everything's been destroyed so these people are just building their own clothes from whatever they have oh that sounds so fun though creatively it was great john bloomfield was the designer and he's absolutely amazing so yeah so you were sewing for him. He would he would come no. up with the sketch, sketches. <laughs> I wasn't sewing for him. I was um, I was dressing at that point. So okay, I did. Um, so I dressed like the main characters. So it's there's so many levels to it. It's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so on on a f- 
at some point you were working on a production and you met your current creative partner, Steve Piacenza, correct? Yeah. So Steve was in the art department. And um, so he was on set with me and I was on set. It was a show called Time of Your Life. And it was a spinoff from Party of Five. And we called it No Time for Your Life because it was 18 hour work yeah. days. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I met Steve there and I met my husband there too. Um, and so we just, we hit it off immediately. Like we were thick as thieves from the first day we met. Were your husband and, because your husband, um, Eddie and Steve are best friends now. Yeah. Did, were, th- were they then? Yeah. I mean, okay. no, we all met at the we same all, time. Okay. You all met at the yeah. same time. Okay. I met Steve two weeks before Eddie. Okay. So, um, and so Steve was art department and I was costumes and it was Jennifer Love Hewitt and Jennifer Garner. So I took care of them and, um, Steve did like all the set dressing and the onset, um, art department stuff. And at that point I had been doing costumes for 10 years and it was super creative. There were so many things about it that were so fun and creative but at the same time I felt like I was always telling somebody else's story and Steve felt the same way so we had decided that we were going to take a break from it and we opened up a retail store together uh, in Hollywood and we sold mostly handmade goods and we had an art gallery um, that was attached to it. Where are you getting seed money for that type of thing because that's kind of a I mean to invest in a space and get stock and turn on the lights and all of that is you know that's sort of a big leap yeah and we didn't know what we were doing so (laughs) but we never know what we're doing so you know um I think if I remember correctly we we set a timeline for how long we would give it a go and um I think we each invested $7,000. It may have been 10. I can't remember. Um, I think it was seven though. And so the rent was fairly inexpensive, but one, some of the things that added started adding up was, you know, security system gates, credit card machine, you know, those types of things, advertising. Um, and that's kind of one of the reasons why we added the art gallery is because, this was before, you know, the internet was just starting at this point. This is pre-September 11th. Um, in fact, September 11th will play into this story. But um, so we we had a certain date where it was like, okay, if this isn't working, we tried. And that's sort of always been my mission. I was like, I'm going to just try. If it doesn't work, I'm fine with it. I really don't care. I more care if I don't try. So we ordered merchandise. We had a lot of handmade stuff and we made our own stuff. We also incorporated the gallery because we knew that the artisans would do their own sort of uh, PR and their own. If we could invite people to the space, then that was just one more person telling someone about it. And that really worked. Um, We did not have a parking lot. It was all street parking. And we were across the street from Paramount Studios. And after September 11th happened, they took away all parking around Paramount because they were on the so-called hit list. And that was very difficult for us because now we were down to two parking spaces. Um, We were very lucky in the fact that we had all the studios there and we had a loyal following with them. But we ended up 
starting to not even open on Saturdays because we were just a lunchtime place. Oh, wow. After September 11th, we were like, we were just a studio store, basically. And we sold a lot of gifts and a lot of cards. So if anybody had a birthday over at the studio, they bought their gift from us. (laughs) It was like, you know, we joked. We had to get more cards because it was like people had bought them all. (laughs) Right, right. So you... You said that you and Steve both felt like you were consistently telling other people's stories. At that point, do you remember what story of your own it was that you wanted to tell? Well, at the time, you know, we were we started hosting some parties at the store called Handmade Happy Hour, and that was another way to get people in the store at night. And we would um, pour a little wine and have a little cheese, and Steve and I would make something, and people would say like oh gosh, you know, you guys are like a show. And and nobody actually, they would just want to buy what we had made. Like, let's say we were making bracelets. They would just want to buy whatever we had just made. And we realized at that point that people really wanted to learn. It wasn't necessarily that they were going to make exactly what we were teaching, and it didn't really matter. They really wanted to learn, and they really wanted to know how to do something, and we thought that was pretty cool, and that's how we sort of, that's how Creative Juice started, really, was um, we realized that being able to teach people how to make things was going to be pretty important for us, and so that's how we... And then we just kind of reached into our purses again, and this time we... um, So you've always bootstrapped all of your stuff. Not anymore. Well, not anymore, but (laughs) when you were starting... (laughs) So so Creative Juice um, was the very successful craft show that you co-hosted with Steve for DIY Network and HETV. And this was back in the day when, uh, before Scripps, Scripps is who owns uh, DIY and and HETV, decided to shift from at at least partially handmade DIY, you know, fully to um, home improvement. Right. So there were a bunch of our shows. It was so fun. It was so great. But um, you, so you're, you realize that this this teaching thing, there's something to this. But so the natural progression would have been to open a larger teaching space or, I mean, we didn't have online yet then, but maybe, or tour to teach. What, what made you draw the line from that to let's pitch a TV show? Gosh, you know, I don't really know. I, we were just... Um we had been around the camera for so long, you know, um, and sometimes in front of the camera, if, you know, I can't tell you how many movies I've been the waitress in, you know, or I I just, I lost count because it's so many, and I, on low budget movies, you know, sometimes you just, you, you pinch, you, you hop in and you do whatever. Steve has been in so many different movies and little roles here and there. Um, None. All the while, we're, we're never actors, you know, it would just be because we needed to help the director who needed a waitress hand coming in or something. So we were really comfortable there. We had been around it. We knew lighting. We knew all that type of stuff. And so we took 3000 bucks and um, again, we split it and uh, just made a little pilot and we had no idea what we were doing. It was 17 minutes long and we've since, you know learned later that it was only supposed to be two minutes long yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. But it worked. <laughs> and um, it sold pretty fast. I think in, in like maybe about two or three months it sold. So, so had you had any experience pitching that type of project? No, not at all. Um, Did, was this another one of your famous cold calls to the network? It was pretty close to that. Wow. Uh, so we um, we started with trying to see if, it, if we could get an agent to look at it. And even though we had been around the film business for so long, we didn't really understand all of that part of it. Um, but we did hook up with this agent who, just so for the record, Steve and I um, produced and, uh, you know, co-hosted and, and wrote the shows. And the first agent that we were with, she, I, she said, well, you can't be a producer and a host. And I said, well, why not? I produced the pilot that got me into your office. And she said, no, 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 honey. You, it just doesn't work that way. So we fired our first agent. <laughs> yeah, because she's, she's absolutely she, incorrect. She didn't believe in us. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, okay. Um, By the way, are you crafting while we're talking? Because I keep hearing scissors and paper. Oh, no, that's just me tickling paper. Okay. <laughs> You just, you just, there's some, there's some scrapbooking paper. You might as well play with it. Yeah, that's my problem. <laughs> Anyways, carry on. So you fired your first agent. So we fired her, um, but another person, and, and then literally like that same week, she got fired from the agency. So obviously other people weren't happy right. with her. And so somebody else who was still there, um, they picked it up and, um, yeah, they it, it sold like immediately, um, which was just, we didn't even, we, I mean, we just didn't even know how to, it was crazy, really. Did you know how to, how you would produce then a series? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we hired, um, you know, we hired people who could help us through the journey and figure it out. And um, we knew that we wanted crafting to be fun. And we knew that it couldn't be that hard. <laughs> you know, it right. just, it couldn't be, you know, it's just, it seems at the time, like, such a leap that, but it's not, it's really not. So the shows that were on then, I'm trying to remember, it would have been DIY crafts with what was her name? Debbie, Debbie Stapley, maybe. And Ooh. I don't remember that and one. And then um, Carol Duvall. Mm-hmm. Yep, I think she was still on. On HG. But those were really, at that point, the main... I mean, there was DIY scrapbooking with Sandy Genovese, right. and there were some other sort of, like, you know, non-craft-specific, or rather, very specific craft shows. But those were really... That was really your competition, right? So you knew that you had to go in with something different, a new spin, yeah, and I mean that was our whole thing too. Is it was really based on on what we had experienced in real life, which was the people coming into our store. And so, on Creative Juice, it wasn't just crafts. We were also making food. We made cocktails. We did furniture makeovers. We did jewelry. We did anything that we wanted to personally do, like that we would want to do in our own lives. We just did. Um, and that worked, I think, because it was speaking to the every person. So we did do some scrapbooking, but it wasn't just all scrapbooking. And we did um, lots of entertaining shows, you know, kid, how to do kids' birthday parties with just paper bags, you know. So we were speaking to people that were just like us. You know what I find so interesting about 
about this story and about the show was that you you found you found the formula that was the diamond in the rough because we've all seen publication after publication that was general craft that has failed. Like again, like the ones that seem to do well shows and magazines and books are very specific, very niche Mm -hmm. audience, which is very counterproductive to a lot of us creative types that are interested in so many things, but selling it is really hard. And for whatever reason, your team figured out the same way that the Molly makes team has figured it out, have figured out, what that formula is. And it's really hard to duplicate. Yeah. You know, the only thing I can say is I think it just came from our hearts. It was just exactly who we were, who we are. It's not there. We didn't have any, literally the biggest meetings that we had to sit around and discuss was like, how many episodes, because the network was very strict about showing alcohol. It was the first time on HGTV or DIY that they had shown any kind of uh, alcoholic beverage. Um, So they were very nervous about that. By the way, we were also told that we weren't allowed to show any any sewing. (laughs) So I remember that. And I don't remember why. Um, because I think some people thought it might've been boring. I'm not sure, (laughs) but, um, just for the record, we had, uh, alcoholic drinks and non-alcoholic drinks, and we had sewing machine projects and non-sewing machine projects. So end of the day, we got our way. I don't know if you remember this. There was also a period of time where they didn't want you to show shoulders. Oh, <laughs> like no shoulder skin. Well, I can. It show changed. You. No, it changed. We all eventually wore dresses and stuff. But I remember, like on the show, oh, it was like shoulders yeah. lead to sex. I don't know. What it was. <laughs> or something. Can you imagine if you had a little booze on there too? <laughs> You'd really I know. Be in trouble. I know, and I don't know if that came from the network or maybe it was just my specific like executive producer. But I, I remember that that was there were a lot of like silly rules like that that now. And this wasn't that long ago. It was like eight years ago or whatever when we started. Now would just people would just stare at you. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that everybody now has a camera with them at all times and isn't afraid to be in front of it for the most part. I mean, not everybody. And that's been a huge transition. So since so since then, so so much has happened, but let's leap just for the purposes of time. Many, many years later, um, and now while we had so while we all had TV shows, there was this whole other league of people that just went straight to YouTube. Right. So you and YouTube is now you know a huge source of media power, but it sort of like has turned the tables, and so a lot of us that are have television experience are reinventing ourselves sort of in reverse. Right. <laughs> How, talk, talk a little bit about your process. You and Steve landed um, the gig as Mod Podge spokespeople. Um, gosh, how many years ago? Five, eight? Uh, about eight years ago, I think. Yeah. No, and, maybe, yeah, eight. And much of what you do for them involves being still in front of the camera where you guys are great, but it's different and it's, it's, Talk a little bit about the process, about how you produce now, how you present yourself now, what, how anything that feels the same or different than when you were producing a show for television. 
Well, I think what's the same about it is that there's still a lot of people to please, just like how someone might have said, you can't show your shoulders. Um, we, we have retailers that are interested in what we're saying. We have uh, major corporations interested and manufacturers interested in what we're saying. Um, then there's also the marketing teams behind all those different faces that have something to say about it. So it is very similar um, in this role in that we're not, this isn't our own YouTube channel. Um, so there's a lot of people that have to, you know, be happy with what we're doing. Um, and that's good because it keeps us in check. It's also difficult because sometimes we want to be, um, maybe a little bit more silly or, um, I don't know. I don't know what, what we would be different, but it's, there's just a lot of players. You don't see how many players there are when you tune in and you learn about the 17 Mod Podge formulas. But getting to that point and getting that video on YouTube takes a lot of background work. Um, whereas sometimes we do our own videos on our own channel and those are like, oh, I want to make this today. And you just make it and you do it. So the the spokesperson role videos have a lot more business behind them um, because it is a business mm -hmm. uh, and it's a big business. Um, you know, Mod Podge is the number one glue and sealer in the world. So it's a lot of responsibility to represent it in a, in a, the right way. And part of that is also being able to teach uh, someone who's never picked up a bottle of Mod Podge how to use it. And then the other side of that is how to teach the person who's been Mod Podging for, we're almost going to be 50, Mod Podge is turning 50 next year. How do you teach that person something new? The person who says, I've been using Mod Podge longer than you were alive. Mm -hmm. you know, so you, you've got to be able to um, present ideas and information that's going to make everybody happy. And At what point after you became a spokesperson were were you given a stake in it? When I say that, were you given a sort of license to develop products around it to really sort of make this, as you said, the number one product in its industry, really partially yours? Yeah, it's sort of uh, like goosebumps when you say it's it. It's impressive. Really. No, it's really impressive. Um, it was kind of an understanding and part of the deal to begin with. We, um, I've been using Mod Podge since I was a little kid. And... Um, Steve too. I mean, I, I don't even know when he started, but when we met each other, we both already used Mod Podge. <laughs> and so um, we felt like from early on, uh, very early on in our original talks, we felt like there was some things that could happen with Mod Podge um, that could make it bigger and better. And uh, we were, I call it corporate versus crafty and that's sometimes fair and sometimes unfair to say but uh you know if you're in there and you're really crafting with something all the time you have a different set of eyes than the person who's measuring the bottle to see if it's going to fit on the shelf properly right it's, it's two different mindsets and so um Part of what we wanted to do, Steve and myself, is, you know, come up with new ways to use Mod Podge. And that's where, you know, you'll see the Mod Melter and the molds. And um, it just kept evolving and evolving. It started with blanks. You know, we wanted, I love jewelry making. It's something I do all the time for myself and for friends and 
and family. And so we started with components, things that people could Mod Podge onto. Um, and that did really well. And, and small papers, because when I would be trying to do designs, I would have to take my papers and go to Kinko's and shrink them tiny to fit onto my jewelry right. pieces, where I kept saying, why can't we just sell tiny images? Like, why, why can't we just have little tiny pieces of paper? Right. So we don't have to do that. So then, you know, literally the process of us not having access to something or having an extra step that involved going in a car, you know, that turned into the papers for Mod Podge. So it just, it all kept evolving based on what we wanted in our own crafting room. I mean, it sounds like a lot of practicality even. It is. It was most of the, even like we have a set of mini detailed paintbrushes, which does gangbusters. I mean, it is just unbelievable, this paintbrush product just because you don't have to take your scissors to to the ones that you have well and it's it's also yeah and because with the mod melts it's tiny detail painting so we've already mapped it out for you we've already said for all of our molds these tin brushes can paint they can paint the tiniest little polka dots you can possibly imagine so it's a no-brainer was there was it a natural progression to go from spokesperson but also designer to then inventor or of products or was it was, was there a learning curve involved um it was pretty natural uh as with everything there's always the learning curve though you know you just you're learning I, I feel like I'm learning every day I make mistakes every day I learn from them every day um I guess the hardest part was and I I always refer back to my time in the film business in that you're, so much of it is your, oh, oh I think we're going to have a little one come through the door any minute. <laughs> <laughs> your, your time's about up. The lad is home. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, so much of the, like, in the film business, you're hurrying up and waiting. You're sitting around waiting for something. And there's so much of that with this now. It's It takes forever. I mean, the Mod Melter just set in Michael's right now. This, like, the past two weeks, it has been going into every store. That has been in development behind the scenes for two and a half years. I cannot believe it's just, I feel like I've been watching you use it at shows for two years. You have been. <laughs> And that's the thing I don't think that a lot of people realize about um, mainstream craft stores, not the local craft stores, because they can sort of order like artisanal stuff or whatever. But mainstream craft stores only have so much real estate. There's yes. only so much shelf space. So you're, you're battling to get it's like a game of chess <laughs> to get yeah. in or Tetris, you know, like you're battling to Absolutely. get into that little space. So which is very counterintuitive to as creative types in a lot of ways, because when we see something, we're inspired, we want to make it happen, then we will release it into the world. And sometimes when it takes two years, it's like, Ugh. yeah, <laughs> I'm kind of, I, I kind of see a new shiny object now that I yeah. want. It, that is the tricky part, because all of our molds came out first, they, it was all supposed to come out at the same time. Um, but with the U.S. government, so our mod melter is the hottest tool, and that required a whole big, huge URL testing. I mean, unbelievable. You can't imagine what it's like to invent a tool that plugs in. I mean, it really? is. Really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it is major. <laughs> it's major. I mean, did you ever consider making it battery operated? Or would oh, that? It's the same. It's the same? Okay. 
So, um, yeah. And then the other hard part, you know, is just, um, so the hurry up and wait. And then the other part that really is difficult is, um, the corporate versus crafty. And I wouldn't trade it for the world because I love the team at Plaid and they've been so awesome to us, but sometimes trying to like explain a trend or, you know, say, this is our vision. We think that we can have these sticks that melt and they're going to go into these molds and then people are going to glue them to stuff yeah. and it's like, <laughs> because you don't have the product. So you have to come up with really, really clever ways to design prototypes. So I mean, are we, you like melting crayons and pouring them into ice cube trays at that point? Pretty close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> pretty close like and then we have I have all these funny old samples of you know things that um you you would never make with them but I just had to show like this is what it could be you know this is what it could be and even the mod uh, melts and molds you know that was a really hard sell that was not an overnight yes um that was that was a lot of communicating and expressing the need I really uh and Steve with me we felt like this concept or this system was something that the craft industry really needed because I wanted people to be able to make embellishments over and over and over again in whatever color they wanted to make them to use them for however they wanted and I wanted it to be inexpensive because you know if you let's say you're planning a party and you need a little heart embellishment you know you can make you can make it purple, you can make it pink glitter, you can make it gold, you can do whatever you want. And there was nothing really out there that allowed you to do that. You could work with clay, but that wasn't fast. I wanted it to be fast. Right. So. And if you buy, you know, if you buy charms, especially like you're saying, if you're wor working for a party or whatever, that can get really expensive. You could spend well, at least $5, you know, wholesale on a charm. Yeah. What is yeah. the what is the creative process like working with a partner? Does one of you have a strength that the other doesn't? Do you just toss ideas back and forth? Does it ever feel um, hindering at all, or is it really truly just sort of a sort of a gift that helps your creativity grow? Uh, I think it helps. I, it definitely helps grow because. Like, for example, this morning, we're working on uh, one of our video series is called Furniture Flip, and we're working on that. And I was doing some test painting before a conference call, and Steve came in on uh, right right after I had done my little painting, and I had made a determination on what I thought was going to be the best, and then he started playing around with it while we were on the conference call. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's like, how would you do it, and then how would you do it, and then we we pick one or we mesh them together it's kind of like two brains getting to work together which is nice i mean we've been doing it a long time together it's, uh we actually met in 1999 so uh we've been crafting together since 99 so we hear your littles in the background oh <laughs> what what how is you became a mother a couple years ago and i want to talk more about that but how has motherhood changed the way that you see creativity or being creative oh my god well everything I look at is like can I use this for um a party I mean everything is about kids parties now and um you so do like to throw a good party I'm crazy you, about parties. you really enjoy the parties yeah <laughs> yeah so I guess um you know I definitely look at things differently too it's like 
like hoarding craft supplies for the girls. Like I've been at these back to school sales like crazy right now because I'm like, oh, I can use this for them later. And so one of the things that's different about um, being a mom is my craft room doesn't have a door on it anymore. It has a gate. <laughs> So um, I don't have it. There's no door to shut. That struggle. <laughs> that struggle is real. <laughs> so what? Um, what, what why? How well, did that choice happen? I know, right? Well, because what was happening is if I closed the door, it was just knock, 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 knock. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas with the gate, they can at least peek over. Sure, sure. <laughs> but I own about you know 150 pairs of scissors and sharp objects, so I I keep them all corralled in one space. So that's another thing that's very different. Is I used to love crafting in the kitchen uh, to a good Lifetime movie, and now I have a TV in my craft room and <laughs> do it in here. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, have you been able, your girls are um, almost two and three, correct? Yeah. Well, two and a half. Sophia just turned two and a half and uh, Delilah is going to be four in September. Okay. Oh, I'm a year behind. Um, Are you, how are you infusing creativity in their lives other than they see it on a daily basis? Are they interested in what you're doing? Are they, do they have their own sort of like creative passions already? They are. um, They're very interested. It's so funny. So we, I, you know, take them to the craft store part of, you know, just for work I'm going or whatever. And one of the first times I took Delilah there and she, she went up to these strangers and she was saying, do you know where the Mod Podge is? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh my gosh. You know, she just, she was only probably two and a half at the time, but it was just so funny. So uh, Delilah's really, they both have um, arts stations, um, which are in our uh, family room. So our, our kitchen and our um, family room are connected. And um, it was one of the things that I loved about the house. And so we have decided that all of the their art and uh, when they get a little bit older, their computer stuff will be in that room. So I can monitor that from the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And um, so they each have their own stations. And it's interesting with their personalities. Uh, Sophia is very uh, refined and she likes to sit, take her time and and she really likes to color in the lines. And Delilah is all about like the big swishy paint mark. I mean, they couldn't be more opposite in, in everything that they do, really. Um, they're both very much into clay right now and Play-Doh and that kind of stuff. So I'm curious to see where it's all going to take them. Uh, and they're both really interested in cooking. They they love cooking and they do some cooking with grandma too. I mean, with us also, but uh, with grandma. So that's... Well, encourage that because there are so many days where I'm like, I should have learned how to cook instead of craft my show. <laughs> <laughs> my career path would have been so much different. I'm well, just kidding. My friend, uh, Erica, she... Um, She's got four kids. There, her last one is a just became a teenager, and and uh, she, she, I've learned so much from her. But she told me that uh, one day she said, "Oh, her son is he, it's his night to cook dinner. He's a senior in high school, and he was making uh, I forget enchiladas and something and something else." And I thought, "What are you talking about? It's his night to make dinner." And she said, "Oh yes, each one of the kids is responsible for making the family dinner one night a week." Oh, that's and delightful. I said. Bingo. That's what I'm going to do. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> right? Right? That is brilliant. I just get happy to hear. I mean, I know the laughter of babies, blah, 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 delightful. But the sound of your children loading the dishwasher. 
magical. So I can only imagine what it's like to also like have these like smells and like a plate put out before you that a child has made that they then will not complain about on top of it. I high five that woman for me next time you see her. She she has a lot of great ideas. She also, um, she's, she gives them a large allowance, which I was surprised about. And um, but they are, she buys them, you know, all their food and their school clothes and, and that kind of thing and toothpaste. But um, her daughters, if they want makeup or hairspray or um, potato chips or things like that, that all comes out of their allowance. They have to buy that all themselves. And uh, I think that's kind of a good, they're so responsible. Yeah, they all have like major scholarships. I mean, it's just, they're the most responsible kids I've ever seen. She needs to start her own podcast or write a book. Right? (laughs) (laughs) So she works with my sister and we always joke that like everything we learn about parenting, we learn from her. So years ago, I don't even know how many years ago, probably about 10, let's say, we were sitting in a restaurant in vermont talking we were all out there shooting a christmas special for hgtv and we were talking about parenthood and at the time i was the only one in the group who had children um we were with jennifer perkins she hadn't become a mom yet um and i think it was just the two of us and you and steve and you were talking about wanting to become a mom and and you know, Steve was like, oh, it's going to happen in the next three months. I know it's going to happen, you know, and you were ready, you know, like you were ready and on it. And I was so excited, you know, because I was like, come on to the team. And, you know, for whatever reason, it didn't happen then and it didn't happen and it didn't happen. And so that you, you and, and Eddie wanted to become parents. So you had to be creative about making that happen. And I just wanted to sort of like wrap up our visit with you sharing a little bit about your journey, because it has been such a pleasure to watch. I, I think that all of your followers, as well as your your friends and family, have just felt the ups and the downs with you over the past, you know, three years. And I would love if you would just share a little of that with the audience. Sure. Well, thank you for your kind words. Um, you know, it's so I'll I'll start by saying something that most people want to ask me, and they don't. So I'll just say it and then that will be done. Um, I never did any fertility treatments. I never tried to get pregnant other than the old fashioned way. I have no problems with it. I've got lots of family members and friends who have done all sorts of methods and they've got beautiful, wonderful children in their happy families. Uh, but that wasn't for me. Um, and so a lot of people assume that during you know, today's actually my 12-year wedding anniversary. So Happy anniversary. Thank you. <laughs> a lot of people assume that, you know, I must have had seven or eight years where, uh, you know, I was doing various things. And, and that none of that stuff is true. I, I never did any of that stuff. Um, again, not that I'm opposed to. I think it's great that science has come so far that we can do those things. Um, so I, I didn't do that. And um, my, I, I always felt pretty keen on adoption and I didn't really know where that came from other than the fact that uh, my grandmother had three children and two of them my aunt and uncle were adopted so it was something that I grew up with it wasn't something that you know I didn't it wasn't foreign I guess for our family right Um, I'm 45 years old so you know the clock was ticking Um, I definitely felt it ticking but I think 
you know, I was such a career girl back in the day that I think I just ticked right out of it. <laughs> like, it just was like, that's not happening. <laughs> Did you just say you ticked right out of it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think in my family, you're supposed to have babies when you're young, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, it was like, okay. Um, so, we went to uh, several different seminars and things on adoption and, and um it was interesting. There were some places I went to and it was like, wow, that place is really cool. Um, but it just didn't feel like it was for us. And then I went to some places where it's like, well, it's probably going to be about $120,000. Wow. You're just like, what? You know, uh, I mean, is and, that special order? Does that mean you can order like you a color and eye color? I mean, what? I mean, it's, it's just crazy. It's wow. just, who can it's, do that? It's crazy. So, um, my, I, I kept thinking that this isn't what I had in mind. Like I, I would go to these things. I thought, but no, this isn't the, this isn't it. And, um, so then I went to a, an initiation for foster adopt and, um, it was actually just for foster care, but part of the program would be adoption. And, um, Eddie went with me and it was so weird. I walked into the room and there's probably about 40 people there for the orientation and, um, Everyone's kind of, it's interesting, all different um, ages and, and nationalities and um, some partnered couples, some married couples, some single people, some single guys. I mean, all different. Really? Um, yeah. And uh, I just I just remember sitting there and I was the, the woman who ran it and she ran it for many, many years, she... I just thought this is what I was thinking of. I was thinking that this is what adoption was to me. And um, so, you know, it was, it was a fast adopt situation. So there's a lot of risks involved with that. And that's where you do have to get creative, mostly to keep your emotions in check, though. Yeah. Um, do you have and, to steal yourself every time? Yeah, kind of. I mean, I you, mean did you have you didn't have multiple babies put in your arms, though, did you? We did not. Okay. Uh, so uh, when you, I went through an agency, it wasn't um, just through the state. And that does make a slight difference. Um, there are agencies that deal with the state, like act as inter. Mm -hmm. Yep. So they are, um, so like our agency, it's called Extraordinary Families. Um, they, have a, we would have a social worker at, we, we don't now because we're legally finalized and everything but and she came to our home um like every at the beginning once a week then twice a week and then once a month uh, oh sorry then twice a month then once a month before you have a baby placed with you no this is while they're placed with you so um first talk, talk about the placement because this this is a great this so, is a great story what happens when you go with an agency is you do your home study up front, whereas if you go with the state, you do your home study at the very end. So before a child even comes into your home, when you go through an agency, your home is ready to be an adoptive home. So you cut out a lot of the red tape that would happen once a child is in your home. An adoptive home for an age range, or, do, or can you choose a specific range? Correct. You can choose a specific range. In fact, you are only licensed um, for whatever that age range is. Okay. So in the home study, they determine 
if and you can get rejected from it but they determine what your threshold of what you can handle is some people say I only want to adopt teenagers because I really don't like kids. I don't like little kids. I only want teenagers. And there are lots of families like that. The person who facilitated our entire process, she adopted three teenage boys, all Mm. from um, different moms and dads. Um, Two of them are Marines now. Uh, One of them is finishing, uh, graduating from high school this year. So she's like, you know what? I'm single mom. She's like, I just... I'm not into that. And she adopted teenagers. Mm. Um, so there is a kid for everyone. You know, there's there's a parent for every kid out there. It's just a matter of getting them meshed up. So um, we were uh, licensed for one child under two. Um, and we have two now. <laughs> well, I remember you saying to me, we expected to... Um, get one, you know, maybe two-year-old African-American boy. Yeah. And you ended up with, well, at first you ended up with a Hispanic newborn and then a Scottish and Hispanic biological sister. sister That's right. (laughs) Of the newborn, but completely different than how the the picture you had painted for for yourself for this. Yeah. So we had been um, told we were open to... Uh, you know, boy, girl, it didn't matter. And we were open to any uh, background, cultural background, any race, any ethnicity, didn't matter. Um, so it was Thanksgiving Eve and I literally had a turkey on the counter that I was brining because I was hosting Thanksgiving that year. And I had pies in the oven and um, I said to Eddie, oh, they're not going to call today because we had been licensed at that point for two weeks. Mm-hmm. And um, so you you know, you wait every day, you think the phone's going to ring and you have to be, you know, ready. And so I said, it's Thanksgiving Eve, they're not going to call today. So, oh, maybe we should have some mimosas. Well, literally, we did not crack open the champagne at that point. We were about to have, you know, start our holiday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the phone rang. <laughs> and it was this person from the state. And she said, you know, hi, I'm so-and-so. And she said, we have a two-day-old baby girl. She may or may not be Hispanic. Can you be at the hospital at 3 o'clock to pick her up? <laughs> to pick her up? Yeah. Wow. I said, can I call you back? <laughs> can I speak to my husband? And um, actually, my husband... But at the same time, are you nervous that if you hang up that you might lose that chance? Oh, God, yes. I mean, you're just... You're flooded. I... Uh, I'm having anxiety for you right now, and I know the ending of the story. <laughs> I, I was I was literally about to get sick on the kitchen floor. Oh, wow. I, I I went into a panic. I mean, I don't think I've ever cried. I mean, I was crying uncontrollably. Because you're having like, a baby. All of a sudden, you're having a baby. Freaking out. And so I tell the lady, I'm like, I need to speak to my husband now. Actually, uh, the real story is that he, the whole thing was on speakerphone, and he was standing there turning white as a ghost I mean (laughs) so I hang up the phone and Eddie's like looking at me and I'm looking at him like we have to call but she said you have five minutes to call us back so I said all right so um I said we we have to I mean and I'm just absolute wreck and I'm like Thanksgiving's tomorrow I mean this is just crazy Bill so we call back and we say yeah, we'll be there. We'll do it. We're going to get her. And uh, Eddie proceeds. He did not speak 
a word to me from that moment. And that was probably at about 9 a.m. until I think we pulled into the parking lot or maybe it was the exit on the freeway. He literally walked around in the backyard and paced like a lion for hours and hours. (laughs) And he was just, and I was like, making a pie I mean it was just complete but what's going on in your mind is it I mean is it oh Oh, crap we're about to be parents or is it oh yes or or is it also okay this could be happening but it might not be happening you never know what's going to happen like I can't get too excited but I'm really excited does all of that go through your mind I think it it does that kind of sunk in a little later at that because there's no guarantee right no no, no, uh, there isn't. But what there is, is like, um, when you go as an agency, you're also able to evaluate what your um, uh, risk factor, I don't know what the right word is, you know, I'm sure there's some sort of correct terminology, but um, what you can handle as far as um, you, the difference between a permanent placement or a placement, sometimes, and we were open to being this, a child might need a home just for like two weeks while a relative could come, you know, to and, and get them. And then the relative would be caring for them. If it's a relative from out of state, they may have to shuffle their work commitments right, and right. things. So sometimes there's a temporary situation. And you know when you're going into it, like, okay, this, like, you know pretty early on. Um, so you give it sort of a two-week thing you know you you know quite quickly we knew almost immediately with Sophia because um when we well so we get we get to the hospital and um you know we had a car seat and a stroller and all this insanity we didn't know how to work any of it so (laughs) and I think part of that also that initial fear your your house is fully stocked at this point you have diapers in multiple sizes you've got clothes in multiple sizes you know you're you have all sorts of things and but uh, you know, you don't know how to work any of the bits to it. So like, I've I mean, I have to tell you, as somebody who's had children, so, you know, I guess the traditional way, you don't know anymore your first time being a parent that way either. Yeah. Like you leave the hospital thinking, I can't believe they're letting me leave with this human being. So you oh, yeah. should just know that. Yeah. Oh, I've got pictures of Eddie in the parking lot of the hospital, and he's trying to do the stroller and he's looking at me like he's going like a rabid dog. I mean, he's just, and he's at that point, I think even screaming at me saying, stop taking pictures of me. That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, again, that camera in everybody's hand and I just like to snap away. Yeah. So, um, when we got there, you know, we rounded the corner and, and, uh, the nurses were all there. It was a holiday weekend. I found out we weren't even technically in the system yet. So it was all just a complete fluke that we were the ones that got called. Um, and the person who was supposed to call us was actually out on the holiday already. And um, so basically she would have gone into a group home that night. She wouldn't have been staying at the hospital anymore because she was healthy and, and happy and, and ready to go. So she would have gone into what, you know, back in the day would have been called like an orphanage. But um, now they call it a group home because there's only at, on those holiday weekends. It's very hard, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were super lucky and so was she, I guess. But I feel like we're really the lucky ones. So the lady that was there let us know 
pretty early on, she said, you know, I don't think she'll be going anywhere from your home. And she was basing that on, um, you know, her files and what she could see in front of her. So we, we did have that moment at the hospital where our guards were really let down at that point. But you still have to be very cautious and, and very careful because people can come out of the woodwork, family members and, and things like that. And um, from, so from the minute she's in your arms to the minute um, she and then her sister, who just as a side note, is her biological sister, yeah. but different father, and mm-hmm. had been with some elderly relatives for the first year and a half of her life or so, right? Yes. Um, And was placed, but anyway, so that they found each other and you found them. So between, so that whole process, how long does that take from the moment, from, from that first day that you became a mother officially to the day that you were legally, you know, their parents? uh, So for us, so we legally became their parents uh, early March of this year. So um, it was, it took quite a long time. We had uh, no contact with the bio family. Um, We we never met them, uh, nor did they want to meet us or know who we were. So we were in some ways very fortunate about that. In other ways, you know, uh, I would have liked to have gotten more of a medical history and things like that, that uh, we won't you know, have access to. Um, but we had a lot of paperwork errors, just one after the other. And, um, that was very, very frustrating. Um, so it was a two, it was a two year process once the baby was in your arms. Yeah, pretty much just, just over two years. Um, I think so. Is that right? Let's see. November to November. Yeah. About two years. (laughs) Two plus. Uh, yeah, two plus. And then with um, with Delilah, her older sister, uh, we had a lot of stops and starts there. So um, that was really difficult. At one point, I, we, we were supposed to meet her many, 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 many times. And uh, I would buy a balloon each time. And at one point, I told Eddie, I'm not buying any more balloons because it would just be so depressing. You'd come home, you wouldn't have met her, and you'd have this balloon, you know. You just look at it and want to pop it. So yeah. <laughs> you just we're not buying any more balloons. <laughs> it's just over. But uh, so we we first learned about Delilah pretty early on. But they had told us that she was being cared for with uh, the relatives and um, that she was going to be adopted by them. And so we said, okay, that's great. And you know, we weren't going to pursue. I mean, what, she had been with them since she was born. You know, we weren't going to. And then we found out that they were 85 and 92. Right. And uh, they were just really struggling because she was at a point in her life when she was starting to walk and move and become very active. And uh, so uh, that's how the two sisters ended up being together. And we got recertified for a family of two. (laughs) So we had a new certificate. Um, And uh, it all, you know, ended up working out great. And the best part about it is they share the same adoption day. So their cases, because of all the paperwork errors, which drove us insane, it actually created enough time for their cases to merge. So they were able to have share the same adoption day. So I think for us, that's something that's very special to us. That's so special. Well, I was so excited to finally get to meet them when, um, when they modeled for me for my, for my book fashion show, um, 
in Burbank not too long ago, or Pasadena, rather. And I'm actually, I'll put a picture of that up on the show notes page, just because they were just so sweet. Delilah and the Bubbles is just one of my favorites, favorite things ever. Um, as was talking to you, friend, it's so it's so nice to have this time with you. Um, uh, thank you. And I look forward to seeing you again. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you, Vicki. Kathy's products, tutorials, videos, and shop can be found through her website. For more info, links, bonus photos, and to enter to win a very generous gift pack from Kathy and the Mod Podge folks, including a Mod Melter and the sticks and molds to go with it, which is about $100 value, please check out this episode's show notes page at vickihowell.com slash craftish. To enter, just post a comment letting us know what your craft or crafts of choice are. We'd love to know what gets your creative juices flowing. Now, the contest will end at midnight central time on July 24th, but keep in mind that we are still a relatively new podcast with a small but growing audience, so your chances of winning are way better than if we were running this contest on, say, like Facebook or Instagram or whatever. So again, you can just go over to the page for this particular episode, and you can find that through vickihowell.com craftish. Thanks again to our sponsor makers, Mercantile, who would like to celebrate this week's podcast guest and fellow crafter, Kathy Fillion, by giving our listeners a special discount of 15% off of all notions on their website. So you might choose from scissors, a yarn swift, or a tape measure to assist you in your crafty endeavors. So you'll just need to use the code Vicky Makes, and that's V-I-C-K-I-E Makes, at checkout when you go to makersmercantile.com. And that offer is good through July 20th. 29th. Craftish is a Camp Bell production. It is produced in Austin, Texas by me and mixed and edited by Dave Campbell. Music is provided by Explosions in the Sky. On the next episode of Craftish, I will chat with illustrator and author of Your Sharpie Style, Deborah Green. That'll go live on Tuesday. Beginning in August, however, we will be moving our podcast from Tuesdays to Thursdays. Since I also do a live stream at the beginning of the week every Monday um, called Ask Me Mondays on Facebook, producing the show back to back with it means that Team Craftish works pretty much every weekend to make sure that we can pull them both off. So for the sake of our family and frankly my sanity, we want to do a little less of that. So uh, this is just a heads up that after next week's show, the July 26th show, new shows from then on will go live on Thursdays. All right, until next time, please take a little time to make something positive just to put that out in the world. We could really use that. Breathe in, craft out. Talk to you soon. Bye.